0: Well, the opposite of meaningful and significant is when I wasted a good amount of time by watching the TV series Lost. I don't know if anybody here has ever watched that series before. Jeff, I see you um, back there. Um, you know, when that was an early 2000s or late 2000s kind of TV series before there was streaming services and all of that. Well, during that TV series, each episode of Lost seemed to be an ed- Filled with intriguing events with the passengers of Oceanic Airline 815, which crashed on a mysterious island. And throughout the, the six seasons, things like, you know, what was that strange smoke monster? Or what was the significance of those recurring numbers that happened almost in every episode? What was the Dharma Initiative? And um, who was who was really Ben Linus? Who was John Locke? In the final sixth season, yeah, the show went on for six seasons. In the final sixth season, fans of Lost were waiting with bated breath to unravel every mystery that was introduced in those first five series, or those first five seasons. You know, the fa- finale came, and um, I don't know if you remember what happened, Jeff. The fa- finale came, and um, oh my goodness, we were so disappointed. There was no explanation of the smoke monster. There was no understanding of the repeated numbers. There was no tying up of any of the myriad of loose plot ends in that show. Here's my encouragement to you, don't watch it if you haven't. You know, fans were left frustrated, scratching their heads in disillusioned. A couple of weeks ago when I was preaching this at Faith East, um, um, there was a father that came up to me and said, Brent, we're just watching the show right now, and thank you for revealing the ending. <laughs> and I I didn't say this, but if I was quick enough, I should have said that. Well, you should thank me right now, because I just saved you a lot of time. Don't watch it. You know, if it it was as if the, cr- the creators have lost, well, they were lost themselves in the writing of this. The joke was certainly on the fans for investing in six seasons of their time in that, hoping that the writers were going somewhere with this and some meaningful conclusion, you know, but really, in a secular world when there where there is no God, in a secular world where there is no God, why would we expect a march toward some kind of resolution or meaning in our stories of life? You know, isn't it, according to the secularists, foolish for us to think that there's some kind of a master planner who is bringing some kind of order out of the chaos? Well, famous atheist secularist Richard Dawkins says this, In the universe of electrons and selfish genes and blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, no nothing but, happy Sunday morning here, pitiless indifference. Sounds like the plot of loss to me. Why is lost so dissatisfying? Okay. Those of you who watched it, we instinctively know that there is a God, and God has not made this life meaningless, and there is a plan. Other creative works by men certainly get this as well. When in the Lord of the Rings, Frodo asks Gandalf how the ring of power came to him. Gandalf says this, Behind that, there was something else at work behind any design of the ringmaker. Ma- ring I can put it no plainer than to say this, that Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case, Frodo, you also were meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought as opposed to a loss when there's nothing coherent about the story. Later, Frodo and Gandalf were dialoguing about Gollum. I don't know if you remember the story, Gollum, Smeagol, uh, my precious, that pity pitiful little creature. Frodo says this, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. And Gandalf actually rebukes Frodo and says, pity, it was pity that it stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that des- die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play, yet for good or ill, but before this is over, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read the series or watched the movie, (laughs) that was the case, actually. By the end of the token series, all loose ends were tied up to a satisfying and a very meaningful ending. Furthermore, you never doubted, if you know the story, you know how it came to its ending and all the loose ends were tied up, you never doubted that along the way the characters were At the same time, choosing, choosing, if you will, please say choosing, choosing with their own wills. Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis, in his work The Silver Chair, which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, describes the adventures of Eustace Clarence Scrubs and Jill Pohl. At a point of danger in the book, Eustace and Jill call. So they call for Aslan, the Christ figure in the story. And Aslan, the lion, comes and says that he has a task for Jill, and that's the reason, get this, that he called her. Jill, with great confusion, explains and reminds the Christ figure. I just encourage you, I don't think the Christ figure needs reminding, but she explains and reminds Aslan that she had called him. And Aslan said, you would have not called me unless I had been calling you. With those thoughts in mind, please turn in to Ephesians chapter 1 on page 150 in the back section in the Bible, the New Testament in the chair in front of you. Um, this week, we're continuing our series, this annual series on building on our heritage and celebration of our 60th anniversary here at Faith Church. First part of our study in Ephesians is entitled, Remembering Our Identity as One in Christ, and today, we are opening up the Pandora's box of You Are Chosen Predestination. How's that? Yes, we're going there. Everyone say there. <laughs> there. That's where we're going. And before I'm tired and feathered and run out of town today, may I just remind you of how much your entertainment features chosen once. Your entertainment features chosen <coughs> once. Do I need... To, of course, I need to mention Star Wars Anakin. You were the chosen one, or Harry Potter, the boy that lived, the the Lego movie, the special, if you remember that. How about the Terminator? Sarah Connor will give birth to the chosen one, or the Hunger Games with Katniss Everdeen, or this, this classic among all of us, Kung Fu Panda, right, Poe, okay? You know, can't you just imagine folks sitting around Starbucks debating whether or not Poe had free will, or was he determined? <laughs> no, you can't imagine that at all, because we don't do that. We are perfectly content with the outworking of what was meant to be with our entertainment choices, and at the same time, we're riveted by wondering what the characters will choose and if they will end up in the right places. But somehow, Somehow, however, when it comes to us... We somehow are not content with the same tension. I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my fate. God is my co-pilot. You know, so as we read Ephesians chapter 1 in just a moment, I'm going to prepare you for this. I think we need preparation for this. So a little bit of predestination, preparation for us this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, here's the first thing. Ephesians chapter 1 is all about God's work in salvation, while this is a way to possibly view Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 can be viewed as salvation from man's perspective. Pastor John MacArthur, in his commentary on Ephesians 1, states that Ephesians 1 is one long run-on sentence. Maybe you're, I haven't been here in the last two weeks with um, your preachers that have been talking to you about this, but Ephesians 1 is one The longest run-on sentence known to man. And in the Greek, it can be divided into three sections. One about God the Father, God the Son's work, and God the Holy Spirit's work. So, chapter 1 is all about God's work from God's perspective. And when we get to chapter 2, you may notice a slightly different emphasis. Salvation from man's viewpoint and the human responsibility of exercising faith. For by grace are you saved. And then we have this tension, the tension that we know if you've been in Christianity for a while you, you, and you begin to study the Word of God, you understand there's a tension there. How do we reconcile the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of man? How does one reconcile that, God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility? How do we do that, faith church? If you will, please say, we don't. Say that, please. We don't. You know, they exist exist side by side in Ephesians chapter 1 and also Ephesians chapter 2. So God doesn't apparently have a problem with it, but we do. When Charles Spurgeon was asked about reconciling God's sovereignty and human responsibility, he is claimed to have said, I could not track down this quote. It was a quote in a book quoting him, so I could not find the original source, but this is what he was purported to say. Friend, you don't reconcile Friends. Second predestination preparation for us is this. Oh, friends, if you you just can't get far in scripture without encountering this all over the place. If you have eyes to see it, it's all over the place in Scripture. Even as you start in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis twenty-five, the Lord said to her, Who is her? Rachel, who has twins in a room, in not a room, in her womb. Rachel regarding Jacob and Esau, two nations are in your womb. And the older, this is God's choice, the older shall serve the younger. David, in First Samuel, David's father is Jesse. So thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord is not chosen. If you will, please say chosen. The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are, are all, these all your children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending sh- sheep. So he said, so he sent and brought a man, and the Lord said, anoint him. Anoint means choose. He's a chosen one. Chose him, for this is he. Going on into the New Testament, you keep reading on and on, and you, and you counter it everywhere. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Fascinating. The Father gives them to Jesus, and they will come to Jesus. This is where C.S. Lewis got his line in the silver chair, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus says, "Fascinating statement right here in Acts. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As and here it is: as many as has been appointed to eternal life, believe. There it is in the last five words: God's sovereignty, along with human responsibility. Appointed to eternal life, they believed." And many of you know this passage because it's dear and precious to you, and it's all over this passage. Romans chapter 8, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, called according to His purpose that Pastor Rod mentioned today, for those whom He foreknew. It's going to be a word that we're going to park on today as well in a little bit. Those who He foreknew. He also predestined, there it is, to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, there it is again, he also called, and those who he called he justified, and these whom he justified he also glorified. It's all over that passage. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his, his what of you? His what of you? choice. Last year we studied through First Peter. We didn't probably park on this because it wasn't the point we were trying to make, but it was in First Peter too last year. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, are those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus who are chosen according to the foreknowledge. There it is again, foreknow. Foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, the tr- trifold members of the Trinity there. My point is this, you read Scripture, and it didn't take me long to find these verses, not like I labored over these all afternoon one time. just came like that because they're all over Scripture. If you have eyes to see it, predestination is there. The third predestination preparation is this, grace and meaning or purpose in life, God's sovereign plan are all dependent upon this. I'm going to say this strongly, and I don't, I don't mean to say that if you don't believe quite as I do, you're not saved. Because I know there's debate, but I'm going to say this pretty strongly. Without predestination, there is no grace. I'm going to unpack that as we go, so hang on for a little bit. But without predestination, there is no grace. If there is meaning and purpose to life, there must be a sovereign God orchestrating it all. Unlike lost. And if there is at the end of time, all loose ends are tied up, unlike lost, predestination and God's sovereignty must be true. Early church father Augustine engaged in a confrontation with a group of people later known as the Pelagians who believed that God's choice, okay, so this is how they, can, they tried to work this out. God's choice was that God kind of peered down through the future. Because God knows everything, and he knows those who will choose him. Okay, so looking down the corridors of time, God peered into the future, and he knew those who would choose him. They had the sense to choose him. They had the wisdom to choose him. They had the moral capacity to choose him, and therefore he chose them based upon their choice of him. That's what the Pelagians believed, but in fact, Augustine, Augustine had committed the exact same error. He, he says this, I was in a similar error thinking that the faith um, whereby we believe on God is not God's gift, but that it is in us from ourselves. For I did not think that our faith was preceded by God's grace, but that our consent when the gospel was preached to us was our own doing. And it came to us from ourselves. I had yet not very consider- carefully sought, nor as I had yet found, what is the nature of these three words election of grace. During this doctrinal controversy, as many times controversies do, they distill what is true. And Augustine came to a very, very strong conclusion, and he said this predestination then must be preached. It must be preached, not as an end um, to itself. It's not because I want to um, amaze you with God's somehow sovereign ability as if I could do that. Predestination must be preached that God's, because this is God's true grace, that God's true grace, that is the grace which is not given according to our merits, it may be maintained with insuperable or insurmountable defense, meaning it's that strong. Now, with those, I gave you two introductions right there, okay? So, with those two, uh, two you've had two breakfasts this morning now, okay? <laughs> with those two breakfasts, are you ready for the main course? Are you ready? <laughs> I hope you're ready. Um, are you ready? All right. With those two introductions in mind, let's go to the text of Scripture. So, let's read portions of Ephesians 1 together. I'll read it. You follow along. And I'm going to point out a couple of two things. Number one, that God chooses. And then number two, toward what end does he choose? We're not just trying to hear, to debate things like predestination without knowing what the end is. What is the purpose of this? So number one, that God chooses, and number two, toward what end? And I'm gonna, it's all throughout the text if we have eyes to see it. So starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as, number one, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, number two, toward what end? We would be holy and blameless before him. Back to number one, in love he predestined us to. Number two, adoptions as son through Jesus Christ, himself according to. Back to number one, the kind intention of his will. will his, He chose this. Number two, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Toward what end? There it is, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Jump down to verse 11. Also, we having obtained an inheritance, having, number one, been predestined according to his purpose, that he chose who works all things after, number one, the counsel of his will, that he chose. Toward what end? To the end that we were, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. There's the end. Jump down to verse 18, and this is so amazing to Paul that, you know, this is one longest run-on sentence known to man. And then he prays that we might understand all of these things. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope, number one, That he chose, of his calling, what are the riches of the glory? Number two, toward what end of? Oh, this is fascinating. God has an inheritance of his inheritance in the saints. God has an inheritance. (laughs) Unlike the series Lost that I started with, more like Tolkien and Lewis, who were Christians, things that happen are meant to happen. There is meaning, and all of it is driving toward a compelling end, and all loose ends will be tied up. And so with that, we're talking this morning about your identity. You are chosen if you are in Christ. That should be a a part of your stable, rock-solid identity, believing this. And the doctrine of God the Father's choosing provides three necessary supports for grace. If there is not this kind of choosing, I'm going to to tell you again, there is no grace. Grace depends on what I'm talking about here today. Again, um, so if you don't believe exactly like I'm saying, it's okay. Um, But I want you to think about it. I want you to consider what the Scripture say. So the first necessary support of God's grace is this. Predestination is the exercise of of God's pure, pure, unconditional love. That's what predestination is. Let me explain. Okay. When our kids were little, so my children, some of you know Josh, worship leader here at Faith Church, uh, oversees our worship ministries. and My daughter, Karis, when our kids were little, my wife set them up on her lap. So toddler age, five, six, somewhere in that range. When our kids were little, my wife set them up on her lap and asked them, why do you... Why do you think I love you? And you can imagine all kinds of childlike answers to that question. And they gave childlike answers to that question. So the kids, in their childlike innocence, said things like this. "Uh, You love us because we're cute. (laughs) What's not to love about cute kids? Because we're good kids. What's not to love about good kids? Because we're kind to each other. Oh, we love those kind of kids that are kind to one another. And then Janet asked him, What do you think it would take for me to stop loving you? They thought for a moment, and um, then they said, Oh, I know, if we hit one another, (laughs) Janet very quickly said, Like you did yesterday, I still love you today. And then my son Josh, thinking that he had an answer that outsmarted his older mother, (laughs) um, said something like this, I know if I killed somebody, you would stop loving me. (laughs) And Janice said, oh, Josh, that would make me so sad. And I would have to call the police, and you would be in jail, but I would visit you every day because I love you. Do you know why I love you, Josh and Karis? Because you're mine. And Nothing you have done or ever will do can ever, ever change that. I love you because of that. So when you think about the kids' concept of love here, in their childlike thinking of love, and I'm going to say to you, this is our childlike thinking of love as well, we loved them because of some innate quality or behavior that they possessed, okay. That's why they thought we loved them, because of some kind of, they were good kids or they were cute. Now, I'm going to say this, any response, any response, if you will, please say any, any any response to the question, why do you love me, that involves behavior, skills, attributes of the other person that is a benefit to me or a convenience to me or makes me happy is not love. What is that? That's a transaction of merit. That's a quid pro quo. Um, so I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's not pure love. Okay, husbands, one warning for you here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cue you in on something. Husbands, when your wife says, why do you love me? I want you to pause. Pause, please. (laughs) Okay? And before you answer, remember the line from Star Wars, it's a trap. It's a trap. (laughs) (laughs) If you say to your wife, I love you because you're pretty, what happens if she's in a car wreck and she's disfigured? If you say to your wife, I love you because you're good to me, well, what what happens when she's not good to you? You understand? You get this? You get this? God's pre-choice of His people is not some kind of detached, quid pro quo, mechanical understanding of love. It's not. There are two textual indicators in our passage today that God's choosing beforehand is a mark of His unconditional love. And it says, chosen in love. No surprise that those who know a little bit of Greek this word is agape, the, the word most used for God's kind of love for us. And also, according to the kind intention of his will he chose, describes his intent to do good to his people. And another textual indicator that was not found in Ephesians, but two of the passages that we mentioned, foreknowledge. I'm going to submit to you that that's intimate, intimate knowledge. Foreknowledge does not mean foreseeing. It doesn't mean that. The Greek word is derived from the same word know, as in Adam knew Eve and out popped a baby. What is that kind of a knowledge? That is an intimate knowledge of a husband and wife and their intimate relationship there. So God knowing beforehand, It's not like God looking down the corridors of time and seeing something. It's not that. It is that he, foreknowledge is better understood as this, for loved, A love that is and will be actively shaping the existence of the individual that he set his love on. Like the Lord said to Jeremiah the prophet. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Intimate knowledge. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Like David, and um, if you were there at the pre-conference yesterday, uh, John Henderson unpacked this in a beautiful way, Psalm 139. But like David understands about his creator, he says this, "'My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret.'" Was skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all of the days. Uh, this is fascinating. All of your days, written by God, the good days and the bad days, before they were, or before there was yet one of them that had materialized. God's for loving of His people. I'm, I'm going to be giving the game away in regard to um, how old I am, but does anybody remember a um, 1979 song by Dan Fogelberg, Longer Than? <laughs> anybody remember that? If you say yes, you're giving the game away as well, how old you are. Let me read some of the lyrics. Longer than, there's been fishes in the ocean. Higher than any, any bird ever flew. Longer than there's been stars up in the heaven. Finish it. I've been, I've been in love with you. Now, now what a sappy human love song, (laughs) okay? But it's quite the hyperbole among humans. That's quite the hyperbole. I mean, really, you've loved me before there were fishes in the ocean? Like, that can't be. But with God, with God, before there indeed were fishes in the ocean, Before the foundation of the earth, the text says, he foreknew, he foreloved his people. He set his love. So that song is entirely true of God with his people. God set his love on his people. But why? But why? Is it that God looks into the future, down in the corridors of time, and says, look at that one. Look at Joe. Have you considered Joe? He's pretty special. He will demonstrate more wisdom than his neighbor in his choice of me. Or have you considered Betty out there? When she believes, she's also going to have amazing choir skills, and you know how much we need the heavenly choir around here in heaven. Or we got to pick John to be on God team. John, we got to pick John. We don't have as much work to do with John because he's already pretty moral. So when he actually chooses us, we won't have much work of sanctification to do with John because he's already fairly moral. Oh, friends. Any response to the question, why did God choose me in love? Any response that involves your character, skills, attributes, or somehow your ability to choose him first, it's not God's love. It's quid pro quo, transaction, merit. Why did God love you? Why has God loved his people? The Scriptures answer it. And it may not be satisfying to you. But this is what the Scripture, this is what God says. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. And now just pause right there. Um, when I preached on this, past, when I preached on you, our saints, a couple of weeks ago, not here but other places, your own possession, that's God's crown jewel. His people are his crown jewels. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, The Lord did not love you because you were somehow more special, more larger in number or better in number. He did not choose you because of that. He did not love you because of that. The Lord loved you because he loved you, and he kept a promise to the forefathers. So why has God loved us? Because he is love, and that's what he does. He loved us because he loved us. I don't know where you are on the predestination free will debates. Predestination then, but has to be the basis and support, the foundation for God's pure love and grace for us. Secondly, the predestination is the basis for meaning and pur- meaningful purpose of a growing and changing life. Ephesians 1:4, just as he chose us, number one. In him, before the foundation of the world, that toward what end? Toward what end? That we would be holy and blameless. When I spoke about you, are saints, over at Faith East, I mentioned that the word saint or holy one means set apart. The term holy in this text is the exact same word. God pre-chose his people to be set apart for a particular use. You have a purpose if you are God's people. God setting you apart for something gives it meaning, gives it direction. You have direction to your life as God's people. Furthermore, in the sermon, you are saints, we developed in that sermon that his special possession is his crown jewels. I just mentioned that, and Paul alludes to that special possession in a verse that we read today. Ephesians one eighteen. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of… Again, this is fascinating. His inheritance. Who has an inheritance? You say, I have an inheritance. Of course you do. Who else has an inheritance? God has an inheritance. Right, for just a moment, look, okay, don't don't make this too awkward, but look at your neighbor for just a second. <laughs> look at your neighbor. If your neighbor is in Christ, that's God's inheritance. And you may say, man, doesn't God want a better inheritance? <laughs> don't actually say that to your neighbor. <laughs> Somehow his people are his crown jewels. And they're His. They're His. If you will, please say His. Nothing you have ever done or can ever do will change that, just like Janet's love for the kids. And please notice the future aspect of all of this as well. An inheritance comes when? When does an inheritance come? In the future. Okay, When when will God's people be holy and blameless? Will be future, So, if his people will be future, holy and blameless, and will someday be an inheritance for God, what does that mean about his choosing of his people right now? His people were not holy and blameless when he chose them. He chose us not because we were holy and blameless, but that we might be holy and blameless So his work of grace, his work of grace to make an unholy and blame-worthy people into a holy and blameless people truly is a miraculous thing. And he's going to put it on display as his crowning jewels. There's a trophy of grace. Now, let's kind of pull this together for just a moment. I'm going to show you something. So we could say this. We could say this, predestination then is God's grace-filled choice, because he didn't look down the corridors of time and choose you because you were smarter than somebody else. Predestination is God's grace-filled choice initially. So it starts in grace, and it results in him extending to his people grace in Christ, okay, that transforms them from an unholy and blameworthy people unto a holy and blameless people. So here's what you could say. Rightly so. Predestination is, oh, my friends, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. John 1.16 actually says this in the Scripture, not of predestination but of Christ, of his fullness we have all received. And read the last words. What does it say? And what? Grace upon grace. Pardon me if I blow my nose. I think it's better than it just running all over the place right here. So um, I know that's not pleasant, but um, there's an alternative that's worse. Okay. Now let's push the pause button on that for just a moment. Assuming so, you are in Christ. And, I, and if you're not even sure about that, we'll talk about that at the end here. But assuming that today you're in Christ and you have been given grace upon grace okay, you've been set apart you're holy to be holy and blameless holy means set apart sanctified set apart you're set apart for God's inheritance to be holy and blameless then part of your purpose then to be putting on is to be putting on display what you were saved by God's grace being on God's team means that more and more God's grace should be more and more a part of your relationships now. So that means our childlike understanding of love is to be different. It's not to be a childlike understanding of love, merit-based, quid pro quo, graceless relationships. Loving others who, loves you, who love you, what good is that? Seeking in others what makes you most comfortable, what good is that? Pursuing others, in pursuing from others what be, what might be most profitable and easy and convenient for you. And you may say, Brent, I don't do that. Well, let me just give you a couple examples here that we all do this. Even in parenting. You know, in parenting often we give our kids things and we say it's love, but sometimes we're just flat out bribing them to be quiet, right? <laughs> I will give them this because this child is annoying me right now and I want them to shut up and if I I, I couch it in terms of loving them. I'm going to give them something but I'm hoping in return that they will be quiet. Sometimes in our marriages we seek not to rock the boat, not to solve problems because in love I'm just kind of submitting to my husband or I'm not dealing with problems because I'm trying to love my spouse in some way when I should be speaking the truth in love. Because their soul is dependent, they may be sinning, and we are not speaking the truth in love, but but I'm loving them by saying nothing. What you're doing there is quid pro quo. I'm just trying to live for my peace. If, as God's people, we are not orienting our lives around what we have been chosen for, meaning to give a different kind of love, you're going to have a sense of cosmic schizophrenia. Two identities in one person. And we will and should have a sense of guilt and discontentment and fear and anxiety. If, on the other hand, we are orienting our life as God's chosen around becoming what God has predestined us for, holy and blameless, and that includes the kind of grace and love that he saved us with, extending that to others. And we are extending God's grace to those disobedient children that unfair boss, that hard-to-live-with spouse, that slanderer against you, we are indeed growing in loving those who are not or cannot love us back. And if that's what you're doing, you're doing you will have a, an incredible sense of unshakable confidence, a sense of purpose and meaning. You have joy. For our soul will be aligned with what God chose us for, and what he saved us with as well. Faith, I want to commend you. So for 60 years, for 60 years of our existence here, that kind of living has certainly been part, large, largely true of faith church members, and I want to thank you for that. And, and obviously, we want a desire to build on our heritage even more and more, and excel still more in that as well. Finally, the third necessary Foundation that predestination supplies for God's grace is this. Predestination is a satisfying explanation um, for God's plan for the ages. You know, in Paul's exuberance, so so Paul has a reason. He has the longest run on sentence known to man. In Paul's exuberance, um, Paul excitedly gives the game away, just like I did to the father from Faith East a couple of weeks ago when I told him the end of lost. But Paul spoils the end game so that everybody knows the last chapter of mankind's history book. He reveals that redemptive history has a coherent plot line, unlike lost. There will be no scratching of our heads and wonderings. Was there any meaning and purpose for all of this life? Was everything that happened simply randomly, insignificant? Where is the satisfying ending of the story? The master, our author of mankind's history so designed that all loose ends will cum- culminate satisfyingly in spotlighting, okay? shining the lights and magnifying the most glorious aspect of the character of our God. It's His grace. If, th- if that's not what Ephesians six means, I'm not exactly sure what it means. Why is all this happening? Paul gives the game away to the praise and the glory of of his grace it's not to the praise and the glory of his wrath it's not to the praise and the glory of his ability to spin galaxies in his hands although he can do that but to the praise and the glory of his grace grace upon grace with his people as the one and only exhibit as his crown jewels shining like the stars for all to see and this was all predetermined by God's choice before the foundation of the earth to be the coherent plot line of redemptive history. Now, friends, um, well, let's just chat for just a moment here. Um, well, I'll do the chatting, you do the listening. Um, we live in a culture that values choice above everything else, right? Here in... Rich America. Okay, we have all kinds of choices. We get so upset when we don't have choices. When you go to the restaurant and you pick what they say is on the menu and then they don't have it, we get mad. Sometimes there's so many choices we become immobilized. We cannot even choose anymore. We even have an ungodly and immoral philosophy that has adopted that name pro-choice. As a modern and rich people, we love our choices. What does all the angst and the theological debates about God's choosing reveal? Here's what I think it reveals. So we love our choices, but we begrudge God for what we love ourselves, the ability to choose. So we begrudge God for His choice. Furthermore, in begrudging God His choice, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to say this strongly. If we begrudge God his choice, you are still in your sins, and here's why. If there was no choice of you, then there was no choice of another before you that would be the basis of grace. We studied this verse last year. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was, say the word, what is the word? He was what? Oh, foreknown. This is not this God, some God the Father somehow seeing down in the future that the Son would do something. God did not just foresee his son, but God the Father knew him intimately. God the Father chose the one who he foreloved, the one residing in his own bosom. He chose his own son so that we might, so that he might choose a people to have the grace that his own son secured. And in doing so, we have grace upon grace. So if there is no predetermined choice, there is no grace upon cr- uh, grace found in the chosen one, Christ. If you are here today and do not know Jesus as the chosen one, as the gift of grace for, for God's people, you may be wondering, and this is a perfectly logical question this morning, perfectly logical, I would anticipate you would ask this, how do I know that I am chosen? Okay, okay. Let me just say this if you are sick and there is a cure and you say I will never take the cure ever and then you die from that sickness guess what your predestination you're predestined to die you were not chosen right? but right now right now friend if you know you are sick and there is a cure and you say I'm choosing to take the cure and you take it guess what you're predestined to live you are chosen So, friend, right now, if you are sensing the work of God in your life, the Holy Spirit's conviction in your life right now, I'm asking you to choose to take the gospel medicine now by repenting of your sins and turning to Christ as your only hope of salvation. Then you know you're chosen. You know you're chosen. Believers, let me give you some applications here as well. Rightly understood, the doctrine of Predestination is a doctrine of grace upon grace, and that should do something in our hearts. Oh, it should do something in our hearts, so it should do this. Unbounded thanksgiving and praise. There is a reason for Paul's longest run-on sentence known to man. There's a reason for it. As we see grace upon grace that God chose because he loved us because he loved us, oh, we should give praise and thanks Number two, it should result in humility as well. (laughs) There has to be a sense of a cosmic joke. He chose me. Are you kidding me? Who would do that? (laughs) What a cosmic joke. We cannot take ourselves so seriously as if God was lucky to have us on his team. In fact, he chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Predestination should also result in unconditional love. This is the way that he loved me. So more and more me growing out of some kind of childlike merit love and into grace, unconditional love. Love people not because of what they do back for you, but simply because love is the goal there. It also should result in this. Repentance from any kind of divisive self-righteousness among God's people. Oh, this is, this is one of our struggles in the church and religious settings. I think I'm better and I'm, I'm more morally washed up. I'm more, um, I'm practicing my spiritual disciplines compared to you. And in some way, I begin to boast about who I am because of all the things that I do. Predestination kills that. He did not choose you because of, of what you did, He chose you because He loved you. If I understand this right, divisive self righteousness should be gone, eternal security. Oh, this should give us great confidence. His people are his. You are mine. Nothing you have ever done, could ever do, would ever change that. And finally, this may not be logical for you. I think it is. But it passionate outreach. You know, enthralled by God's grace, we cannot help. Going back to the first one unbounded thanksgiving and praise. We cannot help in our knowledge of grace upon grace that God has bestowed upon his people to tell others, to tell others about it. He not only forordains or foreordains the people who are going to be saved, but he has foreordained the methods, and that is using a people who are enthralled by his grace to tell others about it. He saves whom he chooses, but the promise remains that anyone who comes to him who have heard, the grace of God will be saved. Let me close with this hymn by Josiah Condor. Notice the words to summarize everything that we've said so far very well. Lord, it is not that I did choose you. That I know could never be. For this heart would still refuse you had not your grace chosen me. You remove the sin that stained me, cleanse me to be your own. For this purpose you ordained me that I live for you alone. Second verse, it was grace in Christ that called me, taught my darkened heart and mind, else the world had yet enthralled me to your heavenly glories blind. Now I worship none above you. Um, For your grace alone I thirst, knowing well, knowing this well, that if somehow I love God today, he loved me first. Let's pray. Father, help us to be able to understand, comprehend along with the rest of the saints. What is the breadth and height and length and depth of your love for us in Christ that surpasses our knowledge is overwhelming that we may be filled to the fullness of Jesus Christ and what you're moving all history toward to the praise and the glory of your grace. Amen.